We study billionaires, and this is episode 76 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. We've assembled the Mastermind Group again, and this is for the first quarter of 2016, and got a whole range of things that we're going to be talking about today. Unfortunately, Hari Ramachandra was not able to join us from Silicon Valley today, but we do have Toby Carlisle from Santa Monica, California. Toby, I'm just curious, is it really sunny out there? It's a little overcast today. It's, oh, not, it's not a perfect day. It's overcast and 70 degrees. I'm sure it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> Colin, <laughs> Colin Yablonski from Inbound Interactive is with us. He's up in Calgary and is the weather as miserable as I would expect up there. It's unseasonably warm actually right now. Oh. So this is the one time when I think you'd rather be in Calgary than Santa Monica. So. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, uh, Stig's obviously with us. He's out in Denmark. And we just got a whole bunch of things we're going to be talking about today from just random topics, of mostly about the current market conditions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it over to Colin. He had some things that he wanted to bring up, and he's going to kick off the show with some topics he wants to go with. Yeah. So I just want to open a question up to the group, and it's really about what is happening in Japan right now. I mean, we're seeing a negative interest rate environment. And I want to throw it out to you just to see what that really means for investors, as well as what's going to be happening to the economy over the next, call it six to 12 months. <laughs> Every, everyone's looking at each other like, I don't want to comment on that. <laughs> I mean, I'll take a swing at it. I'm, I'm a big enough fool to do that. I think it's uncharted territory. Like, I really don't think that anybody knows what's going to happen. The objective of those negative interest rates is to force banks to kind of lend the money, encourage consumers to spend. It's sort of more of the same of what we've seen for the last eight years, just rather than very low. I don't think that it indicates a particularly healthy global economy, but um, I don't think anybody knows what the ramifications are going to be, but I expect that they'll be extreme. Hey, uh, before I throw this over to Stig, I just want to highlight Toby Carlisle. I didn't really give him the proper introduction that he deserves. He's from the website greenbacked.com. He's written multiple books, a book called Quantitative Value, Deep Value. They're all published by Wiley Finance. Just a brainiac when it comes to finance. And also, he has a law degree, so you know he understands acquisitions and mergers and all that stuff like you know, better than most people in the entire world. This guy is phenomenal. So that's who you just heard the response from. And Toby's definitely blushing right now. And for people that listen to our show, they're familiar with Toby. But if you're joining us for the first time, that's who he is. So go ahead, Stig. I want to hear your thoughts on this whole Japan thing. Well, my first thought was that Toby didn't know what to do with Japan. So if someone asks Marus Toby, <laughs> if he doesn't know what to do, I don't think it's easy. If you look at the CAPE ratio for, for Japan, so that's the Shiller PE. So you're looking at how much do you pay for the inflated adjusted earnings over the last 10 years? It's actually 24.1 in Japan right now. So that's approximately the same as it in the States. So you would get like a 4% return. Now, so despite all the problems they have in Japan, if you look at that ratio, it's not that cheap. I'm referring to some data from uh, Star Capital. Uh, it's the same thing that my favorite that we had on a few episodes ago. Uh, he also uses in, in his material. So I will be sure to link this in the show notes and you can see like all the different countries, how that's in relation to the US. But Japan and the US is actually approximately equally expensive. 
Now, you might want to include exchange rate into that equation, and if you look at the exchange rate, the yen does seem to look rather cheap. But if you just look at the, the earnings in yen, it doesn't appear to me to be an attractive investment. It's definitely not an investment I would like to go through with, given all the problems that do have in Japan at the moment. So you're seeing the, the currency over in Japan get stronger, and you're seeing that because there's a run on the currency. And when you're seeing that happen, that's you know obviously concerning because that makes it harder for domestic Japanese businesses to have better earnings in the coming quarters. So I think that that's going to you know punish them as they're looking at future earnings calls for their you know their domestic companies. So I've been saying this I don't know since when uh, end of the summer of 2015 I said that Japan's market needed to you know their equity market needed to contract and it has. How much more it could go, I don't know. But it's somewhere that I'm not even remotely looking at. I'm staying so far away from there. It's something that I don't really pay too much attention to other than just kind of out of just pure interest at this point. And and just, I guess I'm looking at it from this is something that's ready to explode because of the currency having the issues that it has. The country's debt levels, public and private debt levels are through the roof like we've never seen before here in the last you know 30 years. Well, you've seen it in Greece, but Japan's even worse. And so my concern at this point is I'm ready to see something explode. I'm ready to see something really bad happen. And will it happen? I don't know, but that's my expectation of what's going to happen. And so I'm just kind of staying away and just watching out of pure curiosity and interest. One of the things that why I am kind of watching it is because I think it's a precursor of what's to come for a lot of other developed countries around the world. We've seen, and this all started in 1990 with their crash and how it's kind of progressed with interest rates getting polarized to nothing, them implementing just ridiculous levels of quantitative easing. And I really see them them really kind of laying down the roadmap for what's about to occur in Europe and also in the United States. I'm not saying that it will. I'm just saying that that's my expectation based on the trend line that we're seeing with everything else. So I don't think I really answered your question, Colin, but I will tell you that I'm staying away from it. So I saw Toby had something else that he wanted to follow up on. One of the interesting things about Japan and its cape is that in 1990, which was the peak of their stock market, it got to 100 times cape. To contrast that with the US in 2000, got to 44 times. China very recently was at 100 times. Cape is not very predictive over a short period of time, but over 20, 30, 10, 20, 30 years, it becomes increasingly predictive of the experience of investors in those countries. And so Japan, the index has performed really poorly it's down from where it was 26 years ago. China's struggling a little bit at the moment. The US has sort of surpassed its 2000 peak in uh, nominal terms, possibly also in real terms. I'm not sure, but we're still very expensive at 26, 27 times. What is interesting though in Japan is that value investing has worked quite well since 1990. Even though the index is down, really cheap stocks have performed. So if you were Japanese and you were restricted to the Japanese stock market, if you were only investing in the very cheapest using really simple measures, price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, you actually could have performed reasonably well. I think the returns to that cheap decile have been in the order of 20% a year compound. So sometimes the index is helpful when you're thinking about the global, the macro, but for an investor, the best place to look is really your own portfolio. So I always think that looking for undervalued stocks, even in very expensive markets, you can still do well. So really interesting point, Toby. And I completely agree with you that you can pick individual stocks. And if you look at uh, very simple metrics uh, in Japan, yes, it is true that they have been uh, profitable. 
But I think my advice to someone that is going to look at Japan is not to buy the index. And also, if they're going to look at individual stocks, they had to do it from a very systematic point of view. So say they'll buy the cheapest stocks on a PE basis or a price-to-book basis. I think that would be a, a good approach. But other than that, I again, this is just my point of view. I think uh, you probably shouldn't uh, go into Japan at the moment. I just look at it as like you're really making it hard for yourself whenever you're buying undervalued companies in an overvalued marketplace. So using the U.S., and you, the U.S. at the end of the summer was probably a, a much better example because the U.S. Has, has contracted a little bit. It's still you know overpriced relative to other things, but not nearly as overpriced as it was last summer. And I think whenever I was looking at that market, yeah, there was companies out there, individual companies that I was finding that might have been great value investing buys, but I just don't know the company well enough. I don't know what's going on and why that's been penalized so badly in the market price. For me to have a lot of confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to buy this individual company, even though I know credit's getting ready to start contracting and it's harder for this company to turn a profit moving forward. Just a a brief counterpoint. I I do agree with you that expensive markets, when they fall, they tend to take everything down with them. So undervalued stocks, for the most part, don't really provide much protection in the actual crash. They do tend to recover a little bit faster at the other side. But one thing that is interesting... In 2000 in the US, when the market was at its most expensive, because there was that great difference between the dot-com stocks and the old line businesses, the old line businesses were so cheap that even though the market fell, you did quite well by buying these undervalued businesses and long only value investors. So long only someone who just buys the stock and doesn't then go and hedge it by shorting the index or, or shorting individual stocks. Someone who just bought stocks actually made money through 2000, 2001, 2002, during a period when the stock market itself was falling because undervalued stocks were so undervalued and there was a sort of mean reversion, uh, getting back to normal of, of those valuations. So I think indexes speak to risk, but in terms of return, really it's undervaluation, the place to look. Okay. So believe it or not, we actually cut the tape from right where I last spoke and we dialed Hari in so you didn't have to listen to the dial in our initial conversation. But Hari has joined us. We have no idea why he was late in joining us. So right now, we're going to ask him to explain himself of why he was late. Hey, guys. I'm so sorry. My son was sick last night. Oh, get so. out of here. Now you make me feel bad in front of the entire audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a late night. Oh, that's too bad. All right. Well, we're thrilled to have you here with us, Hari. So everyone knows Hari runs the website bitsbusiness.com. He works out in Silicon Valley. He's an executive over at LinkedIn. He provides us some of the greatest insights of what's happening out there in the Valley. So Hari, great to have you with us. And I I was going to help promote your newsletter because you recently sent out this great newsletter and I was very impressed with the content that you had in there. I was going to tell everyone in our audience that they need to go there and sign up so that they get all this you know valuable insight. But because you were late, I'm not going to tell them that now. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. No, I seriously mean it though. Your, your newsletter was fantastic. So a great job with that. Thank you, Jim. All right. So what questions you got, Hari? Let's just go straight to you. We're not going to give you any break or any breath here. What, what, what's on your mind? One of the things I have been thinking about is the slump in the oil prices and uh, the contagion it can potentially have. And one of the reasons I have this question is in the Silicon Valley, I've been observing that a lot of companies, executives and uh, venture capitalists, all are 
kind of in the mood of tightening their belt, uh, being cautious. They see uh, uncertainty ahead or turbulence ahead. I see companies being very cautious in hiring overall. And the overall mood in the valley is really somber. So I just wanted to throw that out to you guys from your perspective. What do you guys think is happening in the economy today? I think that the oil thing is not actually the issue. I think that the issue, and I think Stig, I don't remember when we recorded this or when we talked about this, but we think that the issue is really the dollar and the strength of the dollar at this point. And just, and we're recording this on the 28th of February, just, I think it was Friday or Thursday, it came out with a report that some of the inflation information is actually somewhat up, which is in my opinion, that's a really bad thing because then that gives the Fed even more ammunition to tighten the dollar potentially even more or gives them a reason to say, hey, maybe we need to tighten the dollar and rein this little bit of inflation we got in, which is like nothing. It's not hardly anything, but it's something. It's not negative, you know? So as the dollar continues to get stronger and stronger, and stronger, I mean, how in the world are U.S. domestic companies going to be able to perform as the dollar gets stronger and stronger and stronger? I don't know. I think it's a great question, Hari. And yeah, I'm very cautious about the oil market at the moment. And for one thing, the average oil company is twice as leveraged as S&P 500. And a lot of the oil hedging contracts, they're running out. So uh, I think Q1 here in 2016, only 15% ahead at the moment, which is in historical comparison is really, really low. I'm really not saying that we need to hedge the price. That's always a good idea. I mean, in essence, uh, hedging is often very good for the oil company because then they know what kind of revenue they will be getting. And it's good for the buyer, say the, an airline company, because then they know what whatever the cost is. But hedging basically just means certainty. And having a certainty for, which you will see here in the this quarter too, certainty of low revenue is not a good thing. That being said, we do know as value investors that the market is almost always overreacting. And I definitely see that the market is all reacting in terms of all stocks at the moment. The earnings has been down more than 70% year over year in the oil sector, but I see a lot of value in companies with very low debt. So I have a follow-on point, and then I want to throw it over to Colin, because Colin lives up in the oil sands. Okay, He lives up in Canada, right, where all of this death and destruction is taking place in that industry. But I have a point, and my point is this. What is going to cause the shift to make it go higher? And it really comes down to just like, a couple variables here. And the variables are the supply and demand changes. All of a sudden, there's not as much oversupply and it's starting to come at, at parity with each other. That's going to push the price up. I don't see that happening as long as you have the same number of players in the market that are all fighting for market share. This is like a fight until the death of somebody or something that happens. We haven't, I don't necessarily think we've seen that yet. I think that you're starting to see the signs of it and you're starting to see high yield debt and all their borrowing, the, the cost for them to borrow go through the roof because no one trusts any of them anymore. But I don't see that happening. So that's one of the things that I'm looking for. The other thing that I'm looking at is if the dollar continues to be strong like this, that is a crippling effect for oil. Okay. So we haven't seen the dollar basically let up. And so when you have those, really nothing has changed. So whenever I'm looking at oil, it, yeah, it jumped up to, where is it at right now, Stig? $32, $33 a barrel or something. And it, yeah. the lowest it's been is 25. So a lot of people see that jump and they're like, oh, I'm jumping in. And I'm looking at it more from fundamentally, why are you jumping in? Did supply and demand finally balance itself out? I would say the answer is no. Now they are dropping rig counts, but you're still having this oversupply issue. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So what I'm going to do is we're going to throw it over to Colin because I want to hear Colin's opinion on what it's like to be living up there in the oil sands area. Okay, so it's really been like a game of limbo here where everyone is guessing to see how low oil is really going to go. And for perspective, so far in about the last 18 months, the oil and gas industry in Alberta has shed about 100,000 jobs. And these aren't 50,000 a year annual salaries. These are jobs where people are earning, you know, 100 plus thousand dollars a year. So for Canada, not just Alberta, it's had a dramatic impact because Alberta effectively subsidizes other parts of our country. We have equalization payments, which subsidize provinces like Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. So it's really a scary situation now because we're starting to see the trickle-down effect through our local economy. You know, one person's spending is another person's income, and when you cut out 100,000 jobs, what's really fueling our economy 
you start to see weakness in the construction industry, you start to see weakness for local businesses, and it's just continuing to compound. I'm curious to hear the answer to this question because I've heard so many different numbers on what their break-even price is up there in the oil sands in order to be profitable. What is the number that you hear? I mean, you live there, so what's the number that you hear? We've heard anywhere from 40 up to about $60 a barrel. And it really depends on what form of extraction they're using, whether it's oil sands, whether it's carbonates, which is very expensive oil to extract. But that's typically the range that we're hearing, somewhere between 40 and 60. So it'd be safe to say that at $30, they're all losing money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it seems like every week we're hearing that there's another round of layoffs due to the fact that they just cannot continue to afford their staff. They're closing down rigs. They're closing down facilities. And really, the trickle down effect is probably what's been most striking where some of the northern cities in Alberta, such as Fort McMurray, for example, which is purely an oil and gas town. Not only has it had an impact, obviously, on just employment, but also things like real estate prices. They have absolutely tanked. And so it's been really interesting to see how your engine for your economy, which in Alberta it is the oil and gas industry, once that engine slows down, the trickle down effect to all of the other segments of that economy also slow down. So there are a couple of things that I wanted to highlight here. In one of the DJCO annual meeting, that is the Daily Journal uh, down here in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Charlie Munger has once told that when the oil prices are low, it's better for United States to import oil rather than produce our own oil. He said, just let the oil be in the ground. That's good for our civilization because our next generation will benefit. Just use up all the cheap oil from others. And I know that it's very painful for people who are involved in the industry. But as a society, as a country, it might be good for the United States that we are now getting cheap oil from outside. I think this is a, the hipster stock market crash. It's not an overall stock market crash. It's just occurring in these sort of artisanal small batch micro crashes. So every day I see some company report earnings and they tend to miss and uh where previously the market might have ignored that, they're really being hit hard, sort of down 20 plus percent. This is big companies, the, the ones in my sort of largest 1,000. Do you see eventually that filtering out to the rest of the market? Toby, I agree with you. It's kind of, you know, uh, Pabrai uh, said in his annual uh, meeting, it's kind of the repeat of Nifty 50, where one by one, uh, the Nifty 50 stocks were taken down and shot. And we saw that with many of these, you know, the darling of Silicon Valley's, one by one, they are being shot when they disappoint uh, the investors or Wall Street in terms of their expectations or uh, projections or even earnings. What is interesting and not visible to most of us is what's happening in the private market. A lot of these unicorns are going through downward valuations, many um, investing Institutions are writing down their investments in some of these companies. I'm curious, what multiple do they pay over the user base of, of whatever website they're trying to put onto the open market? Because they don't value businesses off of their net income. It's off of like the user count. Is it a multiple of 20? I don't, it's, it's a really bad joke, but uh, go ahead. You guys uh, keep your conversation going. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it used to be eyeballs and all that stuff before. 
now i think one of the like you know uh, strong opinion from the valley like mark andreson and many other vcs was that hey this is not a bubble now there are real earnings whereas in the 2000s the dot com era there were no earnings the only problem was there was real earnings but as you said preston the multiples were like you know ridiculous like for example uber is valued at close to 70 billion or at least was valued at 70 billion their revenue is like probably 1 billion or so so there is no there is no kind of you know real valuations there it's just a uh, hype and expectations in most cases i got there just after google went public in 2003 i think late 2003 or maybe it was late 2004 and they they did it by this via this dutch auction which is a very unusual ipo process basically they listed at the lower end of their range which is around $80 and it was a depressing time and one of the things that where previously people had sort of wanted to go public you build your little business and then you try to list it in a blockbuster ipo what they were trying to do at that stage was to get it's called ack hired acquired it's a uh, <laughs> combination of two words it means acquire and hire and basically you get a a little bit more than a hiring bonus so what guys were doing what everybody who I sort of knew socially because I was a young lawyer at that stage they were all you'd find something that google did so google maps had just sort of just started and you'd build like a mission burrito locator mm-hmm. and you'd like you'd fit that into google maps and then you'd go and take it to google and say you know hey i know how to build one of these things you can take me on so they give you you know a million dollars for you and your other tech partner to come on and and that was kind of the big that was the big exit and i i didn't didn't think that silicon valley would ever recover from that that's a thing that a young man thinks i think you don't really realize how The only reason I bring it up is because I heard you say Andreessen before. The funny thing is that when Andreessen arrived in Silicon Valley, he thought that it had all happened already, and he'd missed the he'd missed the party. And of course, he then went on to create Netscape Navigator and Netscape Communications, which was the IPO that kicked off the next tech boom. I wouldn't count it out, but I think that uh, I do think that Silicon Valley is probably coming off the top of another peak, and it's going to be a few years before it recovers. Yeah, I agree, uh, Toby. And uh, uh, you you brought up a couple of very interesting points because in the last couple of years, I have heard a lot about three or four engineers who have come up with some product, and uh, that product once acquired will be pretty much killed. That there will be nothing coming out of that product, and you will always see. And it's interesting if you should keep watching the proxy of these companies after they acquire. and there will be a lot of write downs down the line a couple of years down the line and most of the time the acquisition is called either strategic or talent based acquisition but there is little valuation there and that's when i i get scary uh, i mean um, <laughs> like you know you, you never know like uh, yahoo at the peak of the dot com bubble paid i don't know how many billions to the broadcast.com 6 billion 6 billion yeah wow I mean that product they didn't even make a single dime out of it basically. Yeah, if you go to broadcast.com and you type it into your web browser it'll take you to the homepage of Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a question. I, this is a risk that I wanted to kind of present to the group. Sorry to change gears on you. Moving forward, one of my biggest concerns with the current market conditions is really all these companies that are fighting to maintain their peg on the dollar. So the one that I think is really kind of one of the biggest risks right now is not China. I think that that one's a risk, but not in the short term here in the next couple months. 
I think Saudi Arabia is more of a concern for me in that I would expect them to kind of get in a position where they're going to have to do a devaluation of their currency, but they're going to have to do it in, in somewhat of a large scale here, like not a couple percent, but I could say like tens to 20 percent devaluation on their currency and basically drop that peg in, in a, an abrupt way. And if that happens, I think that that would pose a lot of risk to the market because then it immediately makes the dollar even stronger. If they you know drop off that peg, it makes the yuan over in, in, in China even stronger. Every other currency in the world basically gets stronger when they do that. And then I'm, I guess I'm concerned of what ripple effect will that have and what message will that send to other countries as a, maybe call it a Saudi Arabia would do something like that. Does it set a precedence as, uh, for other countries to say, you know what, they just devalued their and dropped their peg. So now can now we can do that. And in, in effect, all it's doing is making the, the dollar stronger and stronger and stronger. It's almost as if the Fed would be raising rates at that point, which even make it worse for U.S. businesses. So I guess my question is this. Do you guys agree with that concern? Do you kind of see that as maybe the next big thing to kind of play out as the market goes forward? And I know we have no crystal ball here, but when you're basically looking at all the potential risks that are that are lining themselves up, do you kind of see that one playing out next? Or I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. I have to say it's it's not it's not something that I track um, closely because I, you know, I'm a deep value guy. All I'm looking at is um, individual businesses and their stock prices and try to find ones that are cheaper than, that are trading for less than they're worth. I do agree that there are all of those, those macro risks definitely impact the price of oil, the price of the dollar. All of those things do have a huge impact on, on these sort of businesses. The thing is, I just think it's so unpredictable. I don't think that macro doesn't seem to follow any kind of sensible path. So I think that there's a great quote, and I, I don't know who it came from, but he said uh, the Portuguese biscuit maker only worries about selling more and cheaper biscuits than the biscuit maker down the road. He doesn't worry about global macro. And I think I do think that there's something to that. You can just focus on undervalued companies. Yeah, it's the macro investors argument that value investors ignore this stuff and get hit by it is absolutely right. And if I had some sort of good insight into it, then I would definitely include it in my analysis. The thing is, I just don't. So I got to use the things that I know that I can do marginally better than other guys and I have to I'm sort of subject to the stuff that that I, I can't understand and I, I think that on the stuff that I can't understand on balance it kind of works out over the long run so you get lucky sometimes and you get unlucky sometimes and you just have to be in a place where the bad luck doesn't hurt and the good luck doesn't help too much all right stig do you have a question you want to ask yeah so my question today is somewhat about oil but not completely about oil specifically I would like to talk about ExxonMobil. So as I revealed a, a few episodes ago or some episodes ago here on the podcast, I took a position in ExxonMobil. And you know, for me, it was, I wouldn't call it a no-brainer, but it seemed to be an obvious choice for me. Strong cash flow, uh, strong balance sheet. And, and, and I really still like my pick. And so I reported the earnings for last quarter and the earnings was down 58% a year over year, which was in, in my opinion, quite decent. I mean, it was not as bad as I expected and they still make a ton of money and I, I like almost everything about the company. And still, when I compare a price to value, I think that the value is definitely vastly more than the price. Now, so this is really what frustrates me. So Exxon has decided to halt their share repurchase program and still they don't cut the dividend. 
And this is just the opposite asset allocation of what I want to see. So this is the thing that really frustrates me, is that Exxon there don't cut back the dividend, but they are halting their share repurchase program. And it's right now that you should actually be repurchasing uh, their shares. Uh, it's now that it's undervalued. And if I look back uh, since 2000, Exxon had 12 periods where they have been buying back shares, and 10 of the times has been at prices higher than it is today. And in a way, this is quite obvious because managements don't like to cut dividends. They know they get penalized if they do that. Investors don't like that. But at the same time, if they're really responsible management, you should be buying back stocks right now. And I think that obviously this is just my opinion. Uh, when I look at the numbers, I think it's undervalued. But even if you just look at it in a historical perspective, this should be quite obvious that now is the time to buy back shares. And even though that they see a drawback in the earnings, you know, I mean, they still have very, very strong cash flows uh, to do this. So my question to you guys is that when you see this behavior from a management of a company, even though you like the company in general, you like the numbers, you like the valuation compared to the price, is that something that would tick you off and perhaps even sell the stock off at some point of time? That sort of behavior is incredibly frustrating. It's one of the factors that I look at when I'm considering an investment. I'm wholly quantitative so I'm not considering management's actions by themselves or management's discussion of their actions. I'm sort of looking at the impact of management's actions in its financial statement. So one of the ways that you can do that is looking at buyback yield or shareholder yield, which is a combination of buyback yield and dividend yield. And it's very clear that shareholder yield is one of the most powerful and predictive measures of future stock market performance. So the better the shareholder yield, the better the performance. So when they're cutting their buybacks at a time when they are cheap, which would, and if they maintain, if you maintain the same level of buyback and your, your market capitalization shrinks, your shareholder yield goes up because you're buying back more stock. It's more undervalued. So yeah, that, that's a real shame to see that because it's kind of the opposite of what they should be doing. I'll tell you the thing that's really frustrating as an owner, if you were an owner of that stock, is that they get taxed on the dividend, okay? But they don't get taxed on the share repurchase. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, so why in the world would management do that? Because that makes no sense whatsoever. You can return just as much value by buying back the stock. So for me, that's a very weak board of directors, and that is a very strong management team that's that knows that they might get fired tomorrow because of the market conditions, and they're trying to, to line their pocket with as much cash as they can. That's how I would read that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, 
Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. You brought up a good point, Preston. So I wanted to understand what is the compulsion for not just Exxon, but many other oil companies in terms of paying dividends. So one of the things I have seen is, say, ConocoPhillips uh, recently cut their dividends and there was a lot of volatility in their stock. Are these oil companies uh, scared to cut their dividend? I think many of them treat it as sacrosanct because a lot of people are depending on income maybe. So there is something to do with this um, kind of you know unwritten rule that you never cut a dividend for an oil stock. I don't know whether they are taking that very seriously and essentially cutting down on their buybacks to maintain the dividends. So there's an intelligent response, and you're exactly right. They're making sure that the market price and the dividend doesn't get you know, a double whammy to all the shareholders. That's why they're not dropping the dividend, because they know as soon as they do that, the, the market price is going to get hit with it. So you've got all these people just sitting on it, sucking a... What is, what's the dividend on it, Stig? 5%? Yeah, 3.6. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you guys are absolutely right. This is really an exercise, and the management has to look good. And you just see this over and over again. And, and this is also really what frustrates me. This is not only for Exxon. You see this for almost all companies that the last thing you want to do is to cut the dividend because it just makes them look competent. Where actually, when you think about it, cutting the dividend times like this actually makes them seem very competent. But that's just not how most investors perceive it. I can tell you and one actually, thing. If I was the CEO of the business, this is how I would handle this. I would do an initial cut of the dividend. You'd see the share price get crushed. Okay. And then you know what I'd do with all the money? I'd go back and I'd buy all those shares off the open market at an even cheaper price. And then me as the owner, I'm killing it. I'm killing it. You know what I mean? Like why? Like take advantage of that. And this is such an important and fundamental thing to understand. Every single weakness has a, has a strength that is tethered to it. In every single situation in life, it's, it's like there's a rope tethered these two things together. So if there's a if there's a potential weakness that if you drop the share price because you killed the dividend, what is the strength that you can then maneuver onto to take advantage of that? 
So what is surprising to me, Preston, is ExxonMobil has a very good reputation, their management, especially in terms of thinking long term and taking a long term view of everything. In fact, like I remember reading this book, uh, ExxonMobil, The Private Empire, where uh, the author is very critical of the company for other reasons. Uh, But one of the things he points out is whenever they are going for a new site for exploration, they run it through a model where the oil prices are between $25 to $100 or so. At that time, when I read a couple of years back, I thought, why were they doing that? Now I really understand why they think like that. They really think long term. Having those qualities in the management, it is surprising that they had to make suboptimal choices in some situations. So if I give them the benefit of the doubt, I can think that they are under siege in in terms of their own tradition or their own commitments, which might not be perfectly logical as Preston rightly demonstrated right now. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's like our Fed, right? Like many times what Fed does doesn't really sound logical, but it still goes ahead and do it, does it basically. And, And that's a fantastic point, Hari. It's the culture. It's the culture of the group think, and maybe the CFO understands very well what well, you know what I just talked about. But being able to convince the rest of the culture there and the board of directors and everybody else that that's the right path, you know. Yeah, and I also think it's a question about how you look at the management because you can also have people out there who's saying ExxonMobil is doing a fantastic job, they never cut dividend, it's still increasing, they have no debt, and when there's problems ahead, they just make sure that they always pay out the dividend. They even cut uh, CapEx here with the 25%. We can completely trust ExxonMobil. I can definitely see why someone who is looking to retire soon is thinking this is the best management that we will ever see. But that's just not the position that I'm in. So I think my takeaway from this is also that you need to have a management that is aligned with your interest. So I'm not looking to retire. I'm 31, so hopefully it'll take quite a few years. And it is actually important to me or not I get taxed on my dividend because all the money I make, I reinvest that back in the stock market, whatever asset I can find that, that it looks more attractive to me. I don't have to live off that income. So I'm just on the side of the fence where the management is not aligned with my interest. You can have someone who is 100% in agreement with ExxonMobil's management. One thing that we haven't covered yet is that Buffett's letter came out yesterday. Has everybody had a chance to, to read through that? Yeah. Any yeah. Uh, anything jump out that was uh, really uh, interesting? I think that Buffett did better than the market once again. So the the per share book value of Berkshire um, increased by six point four percent, and and that's compared to the S and P five hundred, which was uh, one point four. But the interesting thing about that is that the Berkshire share price has been uh, penalized a lot by the market. So it's actually been down by twelve point five percent, and. In general, I don't want to talk too much about valuations on individual companies, even though I said that Exxon is highly undervalued, <laughs> and I'm sticking to that. But I think Berkshire is very appealing too. What stuck me was, like many other investors I have been observing, value investors especially, whose portfolio has taken a beating. Uh, when, they att- when I attended their annual meetings or when I read their letters, there is some aspect of defensiveness. They're trying to justify their decisions or their portfolio and trying to explain why it feels so illogical for their positions to be down or uh, their, uh, their performance to be bad. I didn't see any defensiveness in Berkshire's, let- in Buffett's letter, basically. He never even talked about 
American Express, IBM going down. He never talked about some of his, um, like, you know, subsidiaries suffering. In fact, I think in, in his case, BNSF did, it, did very well last year. But still, that was pretty interesting to see Buffett's take on the world. I mean, he is not apologetic to any of his decisions and neither defensive. So I want to beat up on Buffett. I'm tired of reading the same song and dance every single shareholder's letter and not actually having somebody discuss and trying to solve this disaster of a problem that we have. So whenever I read the shareholder's letters, they're great. You know, I've, I've read every one of them since 1965. It's great. And I think that he's putting out great information, but I think it's time for him to actually start talking about things that could potentially solve this situation that we're facing globally. And for people who don't think he knows that stuff or thinks that he doesn't know macro or whatever and can actually you know, work with people in government, and he might be doing this behind the scenes, but I just kind of wish that he'd be talking about that as much as he's talked about all this other stuff. I think it's terribly important that we have leadership in this country, not just in the US, but globally, that tries to come up with a remedy for this problem. I think his letter this year didn't have anything new. I think you're right. I mean, there was nothing, no insights about what's happening in the world, about the interest rate environment or even the oil prices. It was as if it was written in some other year, not this year. I look at how much influence he has and what what kind of a difference he could make. And he's just totally acting like it's not even there. Like there's this elephant in the room and he's not even talking about it. And, and trust me, I love Warren Buffett. This guy has taught me more about finance and everything else than any person on the planet through his writing. So I'm deeply appreciative. And don't please don't take it the, that I'm not. I'm deeply appreciative of what the contributions that this gentleman has paid to society in a moral way, too. I mean, some of the morals and things that he's that he's personally taught me through the books, recommendations and whatever. I couldn't be more appreciative. But I think this is a time where we need stern leadership from very smart people that have a lot of credibility and a lot of influence, and we're not getting it. He, he has addressed it in an essay that's about five plus years old. He uses the analogy of greenhouse emissions, and he describes them as greenback emissions. And he says that it's not good for society to be sort of pumping out so much greenback emissions. I think that he's constrained a little bit by the fact that he's watched so closely. And he can't, I wonder sometimes, you know, he's, he's criticized for perhaps being seen to be too close to the establishment. And I wonder sometimes if he restrains himself a little bit, that if he was to say something about the Fed, then people would say, well, the Fed's an independent body. And here you are, you're a multi-billionaire trying to influence what the Fed does, even if a lot of us might think that we would agree with what he would say. But there's, you know, there's equally, there's an enormous, the orthodoxy in academia would say that the Fed's not being dovish enough. Paul Krugman would say that the Fed's not being dovish enough, that they're, they're not printing enough money. The interest rates are too high. They should be running negative interest rates. So I don't think it's perfectly clear cut. So I'm holding an article from Bloomberg that I printed off from the 27th of February. We'll have this up in the show notes. It's called The G20 Wants Government Doing More and Central Banks Doing Less. So this is my frustration with people that actually understand what in the world's going on. Because I think there's a few of them out there. I think they're far and few between. And the ones that do understand aren't, aren't, I guess, being vocal enough and using their influence in order to shape things in the right direction. In this article, this G20 article, they come out and say that the central banks have to start doing less because all this QE and everything is actually creating the problem. And we need to implement more fiscal spending in order to offset all this 
you know, polarization to 0% on interest rates. And I totally agree 100%. You have to get people to understand this, that these arms, the fiscal arm and the monetary arm have to be working hand in hand. Okay, and if they're not, you're just basically saying the Fed has to fix it. The Fed has to. That's not the solution here. So how do we educate people in order to do this? Well, I think it's people like Buffett or a Carl Icahn really kind of beating their chest and getting out there in the media and 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 saying these things over and over again because people listen to those people. Toby, did you have anything that you would uh, bring to the group? I had some comments about Buffett's letters. The first one was that I thought that, you know, it's like saying a favorite band, you know, their first album is always their best album and everything that comes out after that gets increasingly less interesting, even though they're kind of better as they get older. I think that Buffett's best letters are his first letters. If you can get your hands on his Buffett partnership letters, they're the best. And the letters that came early on when he was running Berkshire Hathaway are excellent too. I think he's become increasingly aware that he's being observed and so he's become more constrained about what he says and so they're less interesting and and I don't think that they teach as much. But the two interesting things that I found when I was scanning through the letter, one of them was that he gave some justification for hostile takeovers. He said that Berkshire won't engage in them, but he thinks that there are times when they're justified. That's one thing that I often encounter with other people that they don't realize that Buffett did start out as a corporate raider. You know, Berkshire Hathaway was a hostile takeover and he undertook some liquidations and various things. And he's now got an image that's much more friendly, but he did start out as sort of a much more aggressive kind of investor. The second interesting thing that I took away, he's addressed this on many occasions, but he brought it up again in this letter, is the use of EBITDA. For people who don't know what that is, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. Uh, The two parts of it that are important are depreciation and amortization. Basically, those are non-cash charges from the acquisition of assets where the cost of the acquisition is spread over the useful life of the asset. So, a 10-year asset, you can put some portion of it, 10% per year to that asset. Amortization is in relation to um, intangible assets. So, that's patents and copyright and other intellectual property. Depreciation is in relation to tangible assets, which is equipment. In any given year, that those two entries, they're deducted from the net income line, but they're actually cash that flows into the company or accounting earnings that flow into the company. Interest and taxes are the other element of that. Basically, the reason that you add them back in is that the capital structure of a business, its mix of debt and equity impacts how much tax it pays because interest is tax deductible. So you add all of those things back in and it gives you the clearest picture of what the actual business's operations are generating. So Buffett has said that from reading the letters, he has two complaints about it. One is that it's an adjusted number and it's often touted by management's as look at our EBITDA number. And his objection to it is that it's often the companies that have the biggest expenses in terms of depreciation, amortization, who who quote that number. So what they should really be doing is saying, here is our EBITDA number, but here is what we actually spent on capital expenditures this year too, to give you a better idea of the wash. The other objection that he had was similar to that in the the 1980s that the leverage buyout guys would use it. The fact that he has those complaints about it I don't think necessarily invalidates its use. You just have to be careful when you're looking at it to understand what it is. So it's not a net income line. It's not something you can compare the net income line versus the market price, market capitalization of a company. And you can then go and look at alternative investments, putting cash in a bank account, buying a 10 year. You cannot do that with acquirers, multiple EBITDA and enterprise value. The use of those sort of 
metrics is in comparing different companies that have different capital structures, different financing of their assets to see which of those two is the cheaper of the two companies. And when you do that and you test that over a long period of time, you do find that it's quite a predictive way of finding cheaper companies. So in short, Toby, just so I make sure I understand what you're, what you're getting at here is you're saying it's a very useful number when you're looking at it from a basket of picks. But if you're using it from one individual company to another, like you said, if, if the company has a lot of depreciation and amortization, of course they want to use that number and they want to compare it. So I think what you're really getting at is, although Buffett highlights that in the letter, Buffett's kind of looking at it from a narrow scope and he's looking at it from an, comparing one individual company to another. But if you're the type of person that's more of a basket, quant kind of investor, it does become a very important number and very useful and valuable number. And you've statistically proven that in your book, I know. But that's a great point. That's really interesting that you brought that up and kind of picked that out of his letters. All right, guys, I think that's all we got for this week. If you haven't signed up on Hari's newsletter, I'm telling you, I read his last one. It was phenomenal. So go over to his site, bitsbusiness.com. You can sign up for his newsletter there. He also has some phenomenal posts. I'm sure he'll do a recap on the shareholders letter that just recently went out and some other stuff. Toby Carlisle, he has a website called Greenback. He also has another one called The Acquires Multiple. But he has both of these websites. He's constantly making blog posts. He has a screener that helps people filter out the most valuable stock on the market. It's theacquiresmultiple.com. We've got Colin Yablonski. His website is called Inbound Interactive, and he is an SEO expert, search engine optimization expert for anybody else out there that has a small business. That's what he actually specializes in. If you have a small business, uh, brick and mortar in, in your local town, and you want to try to boost your uh, search engine optimization results on the web, this is the guy to talk to. So this is our mastermind discussion for the first quarter of 2016, and we really appreciate everybody joining us. So uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 